But today we're looking at the book of Job. We're wrapping it up today, chapters 38 to 42. And uh, this is quite the story. And, you know, Job probably didn't know that the rest of history was going to be studying his life. But he was a godly man. And, and, and God said he was a godly man. That's a good commendation. But he was struck by Satan, as we know the story, uh, his possessions and his family and his health taken from him with God's permission. That's an important part of this story. Um, and, and Satan had kind of dared God that Job will turn his back on you if you take all these things from him. But he didn't. He stayed true to the end, which we'll see. And he experienced great, great suffering, as we know, extreme suffering beyond words and measure. And um, and his friends came to console him. This this very famous story and um, many questions and much discussion about God and, and suffering and some wise counsel and a whole lot of foolish counsel along the way until we get to these final chapters now of, of Job's trial. And it, and it mercifully ends, you know. I, I think this is an important part of, of trials. They do come to an end. Um, and we're going to see this today. And God actually grants Job his request. He's been asking for an interview with the Almighty all the way through, right? That's what he wants. Give me, let me have a word with God about this situation. And so he meets with God. We'll see this today. And God shows him himself. He sees God, it says in chapter 42. And this transforms him and his life. God reveals himself to him, and may we see God and have our heart transformed by that experience. But we want to see what God revealed about himself today in these chapters, and there are three of his perfections, three of his attributes, I think, that God is emphasizing as he sees God for who he is, and that is his wisdom, his power, and his mercy. So we're going to look at God for who he is as Job saw him. And his wisdom, his power, and his mercy. So turn with me for this journey this morning to chapter 38 of Job. And we'll begin with God's wisdom. It says in verse 1 of 38 that then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And that really is the word for hurricane, right? We're getting acquainted with hurricanes, right? If you've been in Florida this week. Idalia took its toll there, and it evokes a sense of awe and, and fear and re deep respect when we see these storms coming. And this is God speaking as a hurricane to Job. So he's coming with some force. He's coming with some power. And it says, this is God's first words to him, who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. It's kind of a complicated sentence in the original language, but it, it really is like, who is questioning my wisdom? Who's darkening my counsel? Who's, who's questioning my wisdom without knowledge, in ignorance? You've been questioning me, and you've been doing it ignorantly. See, see Job had accused God of wrong. In chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. And God says, you question me out of ignorance. Who are you, really, even to question me? 
but ask if you must and let's have a talk, right? That's what he's going to do. So he says, verse 3, dress for action. (laughs) Here we go. Job's going to get his talk with God. Dress for action like a man and I will question you and you will answer me. You will make it known to me. And at issue was that Job had suffered so deeply and was in great pain, though he was a godly man. And and all that had transpired, Job was questioning, was God acting wisely or justly? Now look, questions are good. And we should ask God questions. He's able to handle all our questions. But you better be ready for the answer, and you can see this is what's coming. God's saying, okay, we'll we'll have a talk. Here comes my, my answers. You know, he, I, I think he, kinda, he actually kind of pulls a bit of a father move on Job, right? Have you had this with your dad? I have. They come with a kind of a bit of fire, like really kind of a bite, right? I, I remember when I told my father that I was getting married, and he said, you better grow up a lot and in a hurry. <laughs> and it came with a bite, baby, <laughs> right? I tell my kids, you know, this old horse can bite. He does once in a while, and that's what you're getting from God, kind of this father move. So God says, here's the answer, buckle up, and you do well to listen, and listen carefully. But Job's complaint, again, in chapter 19, verse 6 and 7, was this. He says, behold, I cry out, violence, this isn't right. But you won't answer me. I call for help, but there is no justice. He's accusing God of being unjust and treating him as a good man with great trial. Now, God's answer um, to Job is, over the next uh, couple of chapters, is to basically say, I made all things. I made the universe, I made the world, I made the earth, I made the stars, I made the animals, I made the forests, I made the rivers, I made the oceans. Like, who are you to question me? Right? Like, this is what we're going to see. Let's just play this. These, yeah, here we go. Let's look at these. Notice, let me just read this. I'm going to read this out of the NLT because it's easier to understand, this little section of God's creation. But let's listen now and enjoy his creation here on the slides He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it bursts from the womb, as it clothed with clouds and wrapped in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. And so, uh, he says, I made the oceans. And I kept them within boundaries. And that's good news as we've seen these surges, right, in the oceans. Isn't it nice that God says, there's a limit. This is as far as you go. And God has control over the oceans. And then in verse 21, he kind of gets a little snarky with Job. I'm like, God, wow, like this is something. He goes, but of course you already know all this. You were born before, I, before all it was created. Why, you are so experienced, Job. 
whoa. I didn't know God talked like that until I kind of studied that this week. You can get a little snarky. And he goes on, verse 22. Have you visited the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? I have reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. And how many wars have been altered by weather? Where is the path to the source of light? Where is the home of the east wind? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain? And who laid out the path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall on the barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground and makes the tender grass spring up? Does the rain have a father? Who gives birth to the dew? Who is the mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from heavens? For the rock turns to ice as hard as rock, and the surface of the water freezes. So God has control of the weather. I, I never realized this so much as one day, many, many years ago now, back in Nebraska, I was preaching, and God brought a hailstorm. And it pounded so hard on the roof of the church, none of us could hear. God was like saying, Kevin, you are done talking now. <laughs> and we ended the service. It was over. There was nothing to be done. God brought a hailstorm and shut me up, which probably was a good thing. Right? So he watches the weather. Then he goes on and says, verse 31, can you direct the movement of the stars? Binding the cluster of Pleiades or loosening the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations to the seasons or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? I mean, it has been a beautiful week in the sky, has it not? Did you get out and look at see the moon? This blue moon, this super moon is so close to the earth, it's just almost blinding. It is so bright and you know our nations in the world are glad and happy and proud when we land somebody on the moon right india did it this week but god hung it like how does it stay there this is just hanging out there right the bible says ah, i did it by my wisdom i know how to make this stuff happen right he hangs the moon in the sky then, chapter 9, verse 5, it says, Who gives the wild donkey its freedom? Who untied its ropes? I have placed it in the wilderness. Its home is the wasteland. It hates the noise of the city and has no driver to shout at it. <laughs> Sounds like Utah. The mountains are its pasture land where it searches for every blade of grass. Will the wild ox consent to being tamed? Will it spend the night in your stall? Can you hitch a wild ox to a plow? Will it plow a field for you? Because <laughs> I made the animals. I have control of all the animals, and, and you really don't, actually, Job. So, so imagine now being a person, knowing all this about God, that he created all the world, the oceans, the stars, the weather, the animals are all under his control. And we say to God... I wonder how that God could serve my purposes hmm. or do my will and fit my desires. How could he do this for me? This is absurd. 
And it's a little bit of what Job was saying. I mean, Job, you can't even get a wild donkey to do what you want him to do to serve you. How crazy it is you to expect me to do what I want you, what you want me to do. And the point is, is that God is God. He is creator. He is omni-everything. And we are omni-nothing. And we will serve his purposes. And his purposes are always good, blessed, and wise, and perfect, and holy. So we are so, as human beings, inclined to resist him, to throw off all constraints and all restraints in our lives. Today's dogma is we just got to be ourselves, like whatever is inside of us, let it come out, right? That's being authentic, we say, in our culture today. And the thought of a God who comes and instructs us and guides us and gives us rules to follow by, that's considered oppression in our culture today. But we do well to humbly admit that we need wisdom from outside ourselves. Right? You ever sat in a test? I look over at the students here. You guys in school, a lot of you. Right? You ever sat in a test and you got the test in front of you and you go, oh my gosh, I don't know how to answer these questions. Have you had this moment? Now a lot of you are a lot smarter than me and haven't had that moment. I've had that moment a few times. And I'm, you know what I do? I start to pray, which doesn't necessarily help at the moment. I should have been studying more. But I don't know what to do. It's a moment of panic. Well, God has given Job a test, test here with all these questions, and he doesn't know the answers. <laughs> and the point is, you need my wisdom, Job. You don't know. You're not smart enough to know. You didn't make the world. And so he comes now in chapter 40, Verses 3 to 5, and he says, Then Job answered the Lord after this test that he couldn't answer. And he said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. We need God's wisdom, don't we? Oh, how we need his wisdom. Now, God comes to reveal something else about his character, and that is his power. His power. And we see that in chapters 40, verse 6 through 42. 6. And by the way, God is just kind of getting warmed up. Um, and so we see in chapter 40, verse 6, it says, Then the Lord answered Job again, out of the whirlwind, hurricane number 2. Idalia, now Franklin, right? The next one's coming. Here we go. Verse 7, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? Job, do you insist upon being right and me wrong? So he's going to address this. Verse 9, have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. 
Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Lord, do you have the power to deal with what's wrong in the world, Job? Can you destroy evil? Can you deal with the proud? Can you bring death to those who, because of what they have done, need to have their life ended? Well, then bring it on if you can do all of that. Okay. Now, it's really interesting how God makes this point, that, that God is powerful and Job is not. Because he launches into this two-chapter explanation of these creatures that God has made. And shows their great power. The behemoth and the leviathan. And, and some people say, well, these are the dinosaurs. Well, who knows. But they are the behemoth and the leviathan. That we know. And these are big monsters. And he speaks of them in chapter 40, the behemoth. And now in the leviathan, in, in verse chapter 41, we'll just read a little bit about this beast. It says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose and pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you with soft words? Just kind of picture a big monster or a dinosaur or something, flames out of his mouth. Will he make a covenant with you <laughs> to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? <laughs> or will you put him on a leash for your girls? <laughs> this is great humor. Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons and his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. So, I mean, this is the point. God says, Okay, here's one of my creatures, one of my bazillions of things that I created. Engage in a fight with that thing. You can't even win that. How in the world can you question my power and how I'm using it? That's the point. And so we see God saying this, verses 9 now through 11. Behold the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? I mean, you can't even stand before this big beast that I've created. How in the world are you going to stand before me? You don't have the power to take out this beast. How in the world are you going to deal with me and my power? Verse 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Right? You can't control the animals, and you surely can't control me. You don't have the power to tame the beasts, and you surely don't have the power to deal with me. And so, again, we find now Job's response in chapter 42. Verse 2. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
God is in control of all things, everything. Nothing he sets out to do can be stopped. Absolutely nothing. Everything is under his sovereign and divine control. Ephesians 1.11 says this, God works out all things according to the counsel of his will. He's in control of everything that comes your way. Everything. Right? Even, and we see this in Job, even all evil. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 10, and now we see it in this chapter, verse 11. Even injustices, all things must pass through the filter of his good hand into your life. Even if Satan does it, he had to have permission. In fact, Satan doesn't live one more day if God doesn't let him. He is serving a bigger purpose than the evil he has in his mind. And let us understand that he has much bigger purposes for us than just our comfort and our ease and our happy, pleasant lives. This is the point. In fact, Job says this, verse 3, this is wonderful that God's in control of this. I'm starting to see what a good thing. Like there's some hope in the middle of this craziness that I'm going through. And Pastor Jim said two or three weeks ago, quoting Spurgeon, that this sovereignty of God's control is a pillow upon which we rest our heads. That whatever you're going through, God has a good purpose beyond the suffering. Isn't that great news? He's starting to see it. He's starting to feel it. He's starting to get it. And so we see in verse 5 now of chapter 42, he said, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. My eyes are beginning to open up to see. I've gotten to know you. I've met you. I'm experiencing you. I've, I've known about you. But now I am seeing you. Isn't that powerful? Now my eyes sees you. I've met you. You know, throughout the scripture, we find and encounter people who have experienced and seen God. And there's a lot of great stories. In fact, I was kind of perusing through many of them. It's a fascinating study this week. And of course, maybe the most famous is in Isaiah 6, where we have Isaiah encountering God and experiencing him and seeing him. I see the Lord high and Lifted up. And it's almost, he's, he's almost surprised by this. He's been going to the temple every week, maybe every day, for much of his life. And suddenly, now this time, he sees God. Well, may God grant us that. But he sees him, and the angels, the seraphim, are, are covering their feet and they're covering their eyes. They long to see God. But they have to cover their eyes because he is holy, holy, holy. And, and holy is this theological word that describes God for all that he is. All of his attributes are, are bound up into one. In fact, if I had one word that could just describe all that God is, it would be holy, I believe. That he is loving and merciful and gracious and just. and He is holy. It's everything he is. And the only thing left for us to do when we see his holiness, all that he is, is to submit and bow and surrender ourselves to him. We see us for our sinfulness. Isaiah said, I am undone. I am a sinful 
man. And then God graciously, through the seraphim, takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips and forgives him and cleanses him and makes him right before God. The gospel is all in this little section. It's just a beautiful thing. But, but Isaiah's forever changed. And this is what happened to Job. He encounters God for who he is and sees him as holy, high and lifted up. And he goes, I am undone. I am a sinner. Look at verse 6. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and in ashes. See, seeing God reduced Job's concern about his complaints and made them feel largely insignificant compared to seeing him and knowing him. And this is what suffering can do for us is it drives truth that we have known forever deep into our hearts to experience him and to understand his holiness and his love and his grace and his mercy and all that he is. We've seen that you have too. Like over the years as a pastor, people go through deep, deep suffering. And we, we wonder, God, what are you doing, right? We ask these questions. A very good friend of mine uh, back in Nebraska as a young man with just a couple little kids under his roof, suddenly was uh, beset with crippling headaches that just seemed to come from nowhere. And maybe some of you had this, just migraines that just incapacitated him and crippled him. And these went on for, for months and months. And he was a, a teacher in the schools, and he had the hardest time even going to work most days. And, and we all were just praying, God, bring relief. And he would say, just pray for me that, that, that God would take this away, relieve my sufferings. And over time, those prayers began to shift in his heart, in his spirit to, God, my only hope is you. If I don't, if I don't have you, I don't make it. I need you. God, you are all that I need. These were the, the, over time, over a couple years, you could just hear and feel these prayers changing in his heart. And then, just like crazy, God healed him. And he was better and hasn't, to my knowledge, had him again in decades. Crazy? But this is God shaping our hearts. And it's interesting in this book that Job is never given the reason why. He's never told why he's going through it. Never. We don't even know. Really. It's in the heart and the mind of God. We have some things we can say about it today. But we don't know. But we do know this. That God wants to bring us to the place where we see him. And say you are enough. You are all I need. And that's where Job finds himself. Well finally let's look at God's mercy. Uh, Job chapter 42, verses 7 to 16. <clears throat> We've seen God's wisdom, God's power, and now finally his mercy in chapter 42, verse 7. <clears throat> Look at this. This is remarkable. Verse 7. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my, Job, my servant Job has. Job is upheld as a godly man. He spoke rightly of God, and his friends didn't. And so, Job is asked to pray for his friends, and God forgives 
them. But then we see in verse 10, it says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had before. And I want us to see this. Trials do come to an end. They're under God's hand. If you're in the middle of one, he is taking you through it to accomplish his purposes. God's good purposes had been achieved for Job. Now God restores Job I do want to hesitate just for a second. I said, this is not because Job earned a right favor with God. It's not because Job was a good man that suddenly God says, okay, now I can see you're being good. Like, I'll make it better for you. This is not that or all his friends would have been right all along. They are not. But God's purposes were complete and the trial was over. And now Job is being restored. And what Job was commended for all the way through, and we see this in Job 19 when he says, my Redeemer lives and I will hold on to him until my flesh sees God. He, this is what he's commended for. He clung to God. He persevered to the other side. He stayed true. He did not do what Satan said he would do, and that is turn his back on God. And that's what we do in trial, right? We don't understand. We don't know. It's difficult. We're suffering. We're saying things that aren't too smart, probably. But we keep our eyes toward God. And that's what Job did. And we see God being merciful. It says he restored to him all of these blessings in his life. This is our merciful and good God. Right? He never puts us into a hard place without having a good purpose to make us know him and see him better and be ultimately blessed by who he is. He never sends us into the ditch without a purpose to get us back out. Right? And this is one of the advantages of having so much gray hair. I've seen it over and over and over again. Right? And Buck and Myra, you know this true. And Charlie and Maria, wherever you guys are at here this morning, you guys know some of our senior devoted followers of Jesus. That whatever he has taken us through, he has a purpose to bring us out to a good end of restoration. This is always God's plan for his people. From the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and they were sent out of his presence, and out of the garden, right? And now the rest of the scripture, and the story of redemption, God is bringing us back to himself, restoring us to him and to his presence. This is what he's doing. And it's interesting, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are sent out, do you remember what was put at the gate to the garden? What was there? A flaming sword, right? Woof, 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 Right? Flaming sword, you're not getting back into the garden. You're not getting back into my presence. But the way back into my presence is through the sword. Somebody must die to get back into my presence. And that's the story of the gospel. That Jesus suffered for us. And by the way, he was the ultimate innocent sufferer. You think you're an innocent sufferer, right? Jesus was the ultimate innocent sufferer who suffered and paid the price that we might come back into the presence of God. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, that he took our sins on the cross. And that when we look at the cross, we see most profoundly his wisdom, his power, and his mercy. 
All that Job was going through was pointing us to Jesus and what he, we would see in him when we see it on the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 says this, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, and I might add, the mercy of God. You want to see God for who he is? You look to Jesus. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In particular, if you want to see God and who he is, you look at the cross. You see all the attributes of who he is beautifully displayed there. Band, you can come on up. Now I want to just backtrack just for a second before I close. Through all this questioning with Job and of Job, do you kind of sense there's a hidden aim with all of these friends? And it's the same, I think. How do I get out of suffering? How do I get out of this? This is a mess. How do, how do I get away from this hard thing that I'm enduring? Right? What do I need to change in my life right now to get back to a place of blessing and comfort? Isn't that a question we ask? Isn't that our motive sometimes? Like, I want to get out. I don't care what you ask me to do. Tell me right and wrong, God, so I can do right and not suffer this anymore. It's the wrong question. It's selfish. And it's saying I want God's blessings more than I want God. I care more about my life being comfortable and easy than knowing God. And God knows we see something way more than just a life that's comfortable. Oh, us Americans love our comfort and ease, and we got everything at our disposal to make it happen. But God says, it's not what you need. What you need is me. What you need is my presence. What you need is to walk with me and to know me. To, to know me is to have eternal life, it says in John 17, 3. And only in his presence will our hearts find peace and joy and rest. Last night I was out with some good friends. We were having dinner together. And uh, one of my favorite things to do is eat out. Those of you who know me know this is my specialty. And I uh, love to eat out. And uh, we were having steak, which I love. And... Uh, Start working your way through this big steak, and it kind of becomes at some point like a bit of a bummer because I really want to keep eating it, but I have no more room in my stomach, and I want to save room for dessert. This is the problem with the pleasures of this world. They run out. <laughs> we can't take any more, but when it is God who is our pursuit, there is always more of him to be enjoyed now and for all eternity. Psalm chapter 63 says this, I am seeking you, O Lord, and my heart will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, the greatest steak dinner, and it never ends. This is what we were made for, for him, to know him, to walk with him. 
And so Jesus said, come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, the one filled with wisdom and power and mercy. Come to me, the one who will take this trial and this suffering. The one who says to us, if you are exhausted trying to please me, stop it. You are pleased if you just trust Jesus whose righteousness is filled inside of you. Trust in me and I will give you rest for your souls. And this is the story of Job. Don't pursue the comfort and pleasures of this world, but pursue God, the only one who can satisfy the human heart. Let's pray. Father, now we come to you as a holy God who patiently works with us and speaks with us and interacts with us and ultimately for our good points us back to you that we might see that you alone are enough for our hearts, what our hearts deeply long for. Oh God, you are holy and oh God, you are good. And, oh, God, we can trust in you. And we pray in your name. Amen.